I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch this. Congratulations, hippie scum. Welcome to a world of inconvenience. And we're We Love to Watch, we're a movie podcast, we pick a theme, we do movies over the course of the month around that theme, and if we remember, we compare and contrast. We're in our second week of the dog days of summer, where we are going through L.A., or I guess Neo-L.A. Shaggy Dog yeah, LA, Mysteries. Shaggy Dog Mysteries, and yes, but they Neo. are. In fact, ne- Neo-Noir Neo Mysteries, noir. Yeah. because they all take place... Uh, well after sort of the post-war classic noir period. We're doing them in the chronological order of the movies, as they the actual movies as they were re- released, not the chronological order of their setting. Um, yeah, we're, we did Big Lebowski, which is kind of the, like, platonic ideal of neo-noir, or specifically kind of like Raymond Chandler, L.A., uh, mysteries where the the plot is somewhat irrelevant and overcomplicated, and the main thing is a protagonist who, especially as we've really zeroed in on, is depending on which movie, uh, of varieties of competent. No one would call any of these people hyper competent, um, but they're either accidentally competent, somewhat competent, or not competent at all. Um, and they are, you know, kind of in a little bit of a haze as they go to solve a ultimately relevant mystery that's that's telling us about the characters and the world that they inhabit. And I, I don't think that's that is true. I guess I haven't seen Under the Silver Lake, which is our wrap up movie. But at least of the first three movies, I don't think that's more true than in this movie, which is Paul Thomas Anderson's 2015 movie, Inherent Vice. Which is his adaptation of a book that I have not read. Peter, have you read the book? I think no, I have not. I'm kind of surprised. Not, not a pension head as much as uh, I would like to be. I'm kind of surprised. Have you read any pension? I did bounce off one of his books. It was, it was, I bounced off Gravity's Rainbow. And then I bounced off Gravity's Rainbow because I'm a big dumb dumb um, who's not smart enough to read good books. Um, but now I think I'm like a little smart smarter. I could probably like fake my way through... Um, uh, a few. <laughs> you get through a few pages, a few chapters. <laughs> I here's what's funny. So I I haven't read any any uh, Tom Spinchin either. I do think if you are listening to this podcast, what a great great way to start. Like this is definitely the the episode on inherent vice. I want to hear the people that not only have not read the source material but have no familiarity whatsoever, really, with the with the author as a whole. I. It's interesting to note, though, because this is the only movie ever adapted from one of his works, and his 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 works are typically typically considered unadaptable. There, it's not a question of like people really trying to get the rights and him being a recluse who has said no to many people. It's that people just go, "There's no point in trying." There's been a couple attempts at trying of Lot Forty Nine and a few other ones, and literally the people making them are like, this is pointless. I can't make a, a movie out of this. And so 
you know, this inherent vice is probably, I would say, Paul Thomas Anderson's <clears throat> least accessible movie, which is, it also sounds like it's very close besides the ending to its actual source material. I will say that while it follows the, the, the overall theme we're doing about the plot doesn't really matter, uh, more than, than even any of the other movies, um, I don't like, Paul Thomas Anderson said that he wrote this movie by literally adapting it word for word as a screenplay. He took the 394-page book and he said, I'm just going to write down everything every, everything that happens and everything that someone says in the order that it happens. And that's going to be my first draft to start making sense of it. And then he obviously shaped it, changed some things, rearranged some things from there. I will say that this movie is a little bit inscrutable. It's not so inscrutable – if I think this is close to the novel, which I've heard it is, that uh, that that his novels seem unadaptable. Like, this is definitely an episodic story that's plot threads are sort of hard to follow. But moment to moment is a lot of fun, uh, interesting, creates a good mood and is like I'm never confused of what's happening in a scene. Yeah. And, and, and this is a movie that like. I'm either just smart enough or just dumb enough to know what's happening in the entire movie. Like, I, I do feel like I've got... Yeah, exactly. I think I'm dumb enough or smart enough to have a grasp on what's going on. I don't find the plot that, like, necessarily inscrutable. Um, but, though I've seen the movie now four times. This is one of my favorite PTA movies. Definitely a top three for me. Interesting. Um, and But when it was over the first time, I think I had, like, a, a general grasp of what's going on. But some of that is because of the way I watch movies. I am I do not necessarily look for the literal through line and how the plot is built machination by machination. I'm often just, like, trying to get a sense of the momentum of the characters. And I feel like this movie, if you track it along most of the characters, is not too bad. Now, I will say... That without some context and maybe without subtitles on or, you know, with the ability to, like, sync up to his particular dialogue rhythms, uh, Pynchon-PTA's dialogue rhythms, um, I can see the dialogue really confusing people. It's it's full of uh, sort of beatnik poetry. There is yeah. a narrator, but very often the narrator is talking about the themes and, and, and is only sort of shining a light on the plot. Yeah. Like... It is definitely a confusing movie. I will say, like, I have I, found... You're absolutely correct. It's it's often considered PTA's more most alienating movie. I find, like, The Master to be way more alienating and, like, less accessible. And, like, a movie where I'm like, what, what are we doing with these two guys? Why are we here? What do you want out of me? What do you want out of these two guys? And, and this is a movie where I'm like, I kind of know that at the end of the day... What PTA wants is for us to spend a slice of life in this weirdo stoner detective's life as he tries to get his girlfriend back. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I I do agree with you. I don't think this movie is is as inscrutable as its reputation. If you are watching this only for the plot. This wasn't like a Big Lebowski. I, I, we talked about it last week. When I saw the Big Lebowski, I didn't like it. And I was really focused on – because Coen Brothers' dialogue is fast and furious, even when it's when it's uh, mostly slow-talked by the dude. And they're repeating themselves and they're, they're – you're kind of doing a work to get to the nugget of what's going on in the scene because in the middle of getting to the nugget of what's going on in the scene, Walter and Lebowski – 
uh, have a big fight and start swearing and get distracted and stuff like that. So there's almost this like you're kind of all of the good character moments, as we talked about last week, you're almost waiting to for them to get through it so that they can stop fighting. And you can figure out what the fuck they're about to say that's relevant that they teased five minutes ago. And the reason why knowing the plot in that movie is so important is that it's actually the five minutes of fighting in between when he says, I have more new information and the actual reveal, which doesn't matter, that is the interesting part. Mm-hmm. Seeing this the first time – I won't. this is only my second time seeing it. I saw it when it first came out. Like all Paul Thomas Anderson movies, I was very excited to see it. Uh, I remember thinking that this was okay. I went back and I gave it five stars. So I clearly liked it a lot uh, more than I was actually even remembering in retrospect. Um, But I do, I do remember feeling like it's, it has a lot of unnecessary stink about, you're not going to know what the fuck is going on in this movie. And I do think that's true of the big sleep and the big Lebowski to some extent as well. I don't think, it is really true in this movie. I think part of it is that some of it doesn't matter. Like a lot of like like what the golden thing is, I think you can piece it all together pretty well. But if you're really focused on a clear understanding and a description of the plot, this isn't that. But also unlike The Big Sleep or The Big Lebowski, it's really not – like the characters don't care enough to really investigate it fully. Like Doc ends up having a – specific goal in mind by the end of the movie to get his friend back. Um, but he's less interested in untangling the whole mystery than like than like that. And even like Bigfoot has a goal of like having revenge less than solving the whole case. So I think I have a pretty good sense of what happens. It's funny that I remembered it uh, liking it more. I liked it at least upon initial watch and rating more than I remembered um, because I do – I do think, and I this is I, I still gave it four and a half stars. I had a great time revisiting this. I'm excited to talk about it. I'm glad we picked it. I will say it's still probably not my least favorite Paul Thomas Anderson, but um, but right above right above Hard Eight, and that's not because I think this is a bad movie. I think it's because Paul Thomas Anderson most of the time hits stuff right over the plate for me and I like I don't have a movie of his that's like rated three stars and so some of it is just how much like I like to go back in it and I one of the criticisms this movie got on its release and this movie actually I'm interested to talk about the critical reception because this movie actually has one of the worst receptions of any Paul Thomas Anderson movie publicly and critically yeah, it, I mean, it, it lost money on its <laughs> modest budget. It has a 72% at Rotten Tomatoes, which is good for most movies. It's well below what most PTA movies um, have. And a lot of critics kind of said that they were becoming frustrated. This is after The Master, which I agree is also a very alienating movie that I didn't love the first time I saw it. Um I think it. The, a lot of critics were specifically noting how frustrated they were that Paul Thomas Anderson's, who started as a very accessible filmmaker, who was still making uh, incredibly complicated, well-directed indie movies, seemed more focused on starting to alienate his audience than he was at bringing them in. And the act of alienation seemed more interesting to him than telling a story or giving us good characters. Now, I don't agree with that criticism but i i i can see where his work 
got a little more frustrating for me as well was I loved There Will Be Blood. I was I, – I didn't I, – I loved – I liked The Master when I saw it. I liked this when I saw it. I liked uh, Phantom Thread when I saw it. Um, I didn't like immediately fall in love with the movie until Licorice Pizza. But as I've gone back and rewatched The Master and now rewatched this, um, my memory of them was more positive than I remember. So, Peter, what about you? Were you were you instantly awed with this movie? You, I, I know you picked it to guest on yeah. our friend Ethan Warren's uh, pod, Thomas Anderson podcast. This is definitely the orf- one of the orphan. Um, PTA movies. Um, I wouldn't say any of them are fully orphaned. There's no intolerable cruelty um, or lady killers where the entire fan base more or less has turned on it, right? Yeah. Um, But when uh, Ethan, who was putting together a really, really fun project that you should definitely check out for his book, American Apocrypha, which is entirely about PTA. And I want to kind of also put a little asterisk here that while we're going to try and talk about PTA as a filmmaker, what he's trying to do here... Ethan is on operating on a different level than we are. So yeah. uh, if you really want to dig into throughout the different eras of his career has been up to um, from a and the way and the way his films have like share thematic links and stuff like that. Yes, definitely um, check out American Apocrypha, our friend's book, Plug Plug. Ethan Warren, you can find him if you Google his name, Paul Thomas Anderson. It comes up right away, I know, because I've held my phone up and Googled it because I forgot the name of his book and showed it to friends. So, <laughs> the book is called American Apocrypha. It's amazing. But you can just Google Ethan Warren and Paul Thomas Anderson. It's going to be the first thing that comes up. I promise yes, you. absolutely. And he also, uh, with One one Heat Minute uh, Productions, um, does amazing, really fun yeah. like uh, podcast projects. Some of them are kind of experimental with format. Uh, put together a series alongside Ethan that sort of um, goes through in 30-ish minute episodes, goes through um, the career of Paul Thomas Anderson in brief. And yeah. so each episode equals one movie. Uh, Aaron, you were on Punch Drunk Love, right? Yeah, that's my favorite of Paul Thomas Anderson's movie. Now, my favorite is probably like There Will Be Blood or, or Boogie Nights. It's just a pretty, pr- pretty boring answer. But like when I get asked, like when I'm given a list like this, I always end up choosing no. what is the orphan that I want to like step up. What's the orphan that I really want to speak for? And I was like, I you tried to pick like a Fiona Apple video. Yes, immediately you jumped on Inherent Vice, uh, and he told me that no one else had, and uh, and then it turned into a great thirty-ish no. minute episode uh, with with me and some uh, very talented uh, co-guests. Um, got to talk about a very peculiar little orphaned um, PTA movie. So definitely also want to plug that production because One Heat Minute did a great job there. Um, yeah. This got my wheels turning where we've been watching. Yeah, I wouldn't listen to this, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a 30-minute version with a lot more – with a lot less blood moon and ranking talk. They don't call anything normal, let alone numbers. None. None. And uh, yeah, so I would listen to that episode. And Peter's on it. And I'm, on, and I'm on that one. Yeah. Um, so uh, I would listen to the Punch Drunk Love episode if you prefer for me not If you to. want to even it out and make sure you're getting an equal amount of Aaron and Peter listening, I would definitely do that. But yeah. if you just want to listen to Aaron Vice, unfortunately, wasn't on that one. Yes. Um, but yes, so that was a lot of fun. But that episode, uh, we're not trying to steal, uh, you know, Ethan's steez. That's why we spent so long plugging him. Um, we got his written permission, too. Yeah, we uh, we're like we're doing this. 
you can't guess. <laughs> I did. We did kind of say we, we did, did say he say. could guess on this, and he's like, "You were right." Like, there's no way he's going to want to talk about inherent vice. He's, he's well. He's joining us in two weeks for Under the Silver Lake. So the when we decided to do this month, I want. I really like insisted on this and Big Lebowski and I was yeah. flexible on the other two because I, I see these two movies as sort of corollaries and I see Inherent Vice as actually, even though we have never covered a PTA movie, it may be a while before we cover another one. I see this one as like perfect We Love to Watch material because it's essentially, it's a genre work that is given this big classy treatment and a lot of people were like, is this dog shit? And we're like, no, it's not dog shit. It's good. Let's talk yeah. about it for two hours. This is yeah. the perfect uh, We Love to Watch movie. I agree because it also like, it's got a perfect We Love to Watch cast. These are all actors, whether they're in a, like, I mean, it's probably not a surprise to anyone that a 40-year-old white guy loves Joanna Newsom, but like, <laughs> she's, you know... <laughs> It's great that she's so good in this movie. She's so uh, – it's such a great ad uh, to have, like, her be the narrator. I guess she was a minor character in the book. Um, but, like, there's there's so much about this movie I I really like. And, I, I mean, it's – I like the overcomplicated – like, um, you know, one of the things about encountering Big Lebowski at a young age is I think also – and we talked about this last week – recalibrating your brain when you are saying, hey, this is going to be a movie. And all the reviews said this. This is going to be a movie where the whole mystery doesn't quite add up. Like, it's going to be confusing. You're going to have trouble figuring out what's going on. That was the message I got loud and clear before I watched The Big Sleep. It's the message I got when I watched this movie. And one of the things about encountering Lebowski at a young age and realizing that I would missed the point is that I think you can recalibrate a a viewing of a movie where that is the asterisk in front of it. And so I think the first time I watched this movie, I wasn't over that. I wasn't overly concerned about whether the golden Fang was a CIA op or whether it was a heroin uh, dealership or whether it was just a ship with sex parties going on or things like that. Like I recognize them that all of the critics were saying in the reviews I read you're not going to know and maybe it doesn't matter. And so that that is the disclaimer for watching this movie. It's not that the plot is unsolvable. It's that it doesn't really matter. What yeah. matters is is uh Ethan in his book talks about this like it's almost like a like it's an exhalation of smoke that just kind of washes over you. Um and, you know, you can breathe some of it in, but you're not hold- – you, you shouldn't try to hold on to it for too long. I'm probably butchering. It's been a while since I read the book. Um, so, if he's listening to this, he's probably like, that is not what I said at all. But I, I think that metaphor <laughs> works really well because it is – it also kind of matches the um, – our protagonist. Like, part of the reason the movie is hazy is that you are living in, in the hazy world of Doc – to begin with, he spends the entire movie smoking pot, and he is actually more competent than I remembered. You, you, you did really want to do Big Lebowski in this, and last week we were talking about that they do seem like very similar movies. I will say that the similarity is the the druggy haze that exists throughout it. Doc is probably our most competent protagonist of the the at least the first three movies that we're covering um 
I, I, he, he like, he is trying to solve the mystery. He is putting two and two together. He is ahead of most other people in the movie. Like, the thing about Lebowski is that everyone knows more than him, kind of. Like, they don't know where Bunny is, but everyone knows way more and are using him for what they're what they're <laughs> The only people that know less are his friends that go with him. <laughs> yeah, that are also, that are using his speculation to fill in their gaps uh, for not being there. Like, Doc knows a, a lot. He knows more than the CIA spooks that are in there. He knows more than um than than Owen Wilson he knows more than Bigfoot in a lot of cases like you know he's giving them clues about like uh you know did you test for copper and when you look at you know all, all the different things that he knows it's just that he kind of forgets what he's doing sometimes and and there's there's a haze over the whole thing and he sometimes makes stupid leaps here and there but like i actually really like that they make him a somewhat competent detective who is a bumbling human being, but not always a bumbling PI. If this is the sort of movie, this is okay. So the joke in Big Lebowski is that he's literally getting high in his apartment and either laying on the rug, um, coming home from bowling, laying in the tub, laying in bed, whatever. And someone comes into his house like five times and, like, basically, like, hits him on the nose and says, come with, you're learning more about the movie. Yeah. In Doc's case, he spends a good amount of time uh, in the in his office and his home getting high. And people do come in to, uh, you know, Shasta comes in to give him his case, just like any mystery. But he's running around town. He's He's solving mysteries. He fucks up some stuff that's very funny when he fucks it up, right? Yeah. Like, he's... Um, but he ultimately is a weirdly... Um, a weirdly effective detective, and I think some of that is because people underwrite him. He fucks up stuff. He fucks up stuff like his cover all the time. Yeah, and people just kind of go, "Okay." Like the the movie shrugs at him. It, it's very funny because he gets high and he's like, "Uh, I'm here because my client's daughter needs a." place for rehab i want to yeah you're or the or the you're here about uh good question <laughs> yes like he fucks stuff but, like but this when, up he's also like there's times where he's yeah. like he he could have avoided a beating but he still takes one right like yeah well it's also adorable that like he does put all this work into his disguises like he is he's so funny in that like you know he changes his hair like when he needs to be a business professional he like Slicks it down, but he's still like a hippie with giant mutton chops, like, and an ill-fitting suit. Like, he, he, they never comment on it in the, well, I guess there's a little oh, bit of commenting on it. Oh, and Big Four, Bigfoot says, like, no matter what, you always smell like a fucking hippie. He says you smell like a patchouli yeah. fart. <laughs> yeah. Well, he gets that, uh, that advice from Joanna Newsom, like, you know, change your hair, change who you are as a person of, like, how to do disguises, and he gives himself a perm, but he just looks like a hippie with a perm. Like, it's so, it's, it's, it's somewhat it adorable. like Abby Hoffman or something after that, yeah. right? Isn't... It's, it's adorable, but it doesn't, it doesn't change his competency of putting two and two together or seeing, seeing the seams of something, which also works well for, like, there's so many scenes of him, like, you know, in stoner pose, staring through something. And, like, he, he kind of solves this mystery, like, the way that people solve magic eye posters, right? Like, the whole point of a magic eye poster is you need to unfocus your eyes and see through it. 
And that's that's how Doc works. Like, he's not going to hyper-focus and find all the clues. He gets all the things, unfocuses himself, and that's able for him to see a bigger picture that other people are missing. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good that's a good analogy. And I, while we're kind of setting up who Doc is and we're setting up the location, um, let's talk about time and place um, yep. really quickly. So that, um, that's also going to be an important comparison part to to next week's movie. Uh, that that uses a similar time and Shaggy Dog for a totally different purpose. Yes, exactly. Um, so. Uh, this movie takes place in the fictional um, L.A. beach uh, community of Gordita Beach. Um, it's basically supposed to be Manhattan Beach. Um, there's some complexity there, but Manhattan Beach is where Thomas Pynchon lived for a few years and kind of inspired some of the vibes of this movie. This is a movie I find very comfortable. It very much has this sort of sunset, beautiful twilight kind of quality to a lot of it. Um, and it's this movie that I like hanging out with Doc. Doc is somebody that walks around and makes friends in the community. His connections matter. He's someone that like Gordita Beach is like, not just a home for him, but it's like, it's his nest. Like yeah. everything he needs is in Gordita Beach. And the movie has this sort of comforting vibe when you know they're going back to the beach. Yeah. Um, you're like, oh, Doc's getting out of danger for a little bit, right? And then there's some excitement when Doc's like actually on the move. So it kind of has this nice push pull. Um, so Pin uh, when Pynchon lived in Manhattan Beach, uh, obviously, this is inspired by a particular change in California history <coughs> that. Um, I, as a, someone who's lived in Southern California now for six, six years, um, I have some feelings about, um, so I obviously wasn't there in 1969 and could feel the summer of love turning sour with the death of Charles Manson or whatever. Uh, I also wasn't there when- I don't think you know, Charles uh, Manson died. Yeah. Uh, well, sorry, with the deaths caused by Charles Manson. Yeah. I also wasn't there- you know, when, uh, you know, uh, Hell's Angels were stabbing people at Rolling Stones concerts. The movie takes place in a particular time as sort of like the hippie count the hippie movement is bashing up against the culture. But it's a very different movie than, say, like a Forrest Gump or some sort of boomer memory. Because yeah. it's very much about how the hippie dream wasn't just like... Um, you know, uh, the hippie dream didn't just end overnight, how it like soured and turned on itself. And, and, you know, all these drugs and people with nothing better to do with their lives. And also people that genuinely had a problem with the prevailing culture, right? People, with yeah, prevailing problem. People that make fun of hippies now have the exact same complaints that hippies had in the sixties, which is that like corporate culture was killing, killing your souls. Why don't we hit the road and try and find a new way to live? Right. Um, it's just that now there's remote work and shit, so people just basically uh, pretend like they're some sort of uh, Hell's Angels, but really they're clocking in at a Starbucks in Sacramento or wherever the fuck they're on the road. But this movie is very much about the death of the death of the hippie generation, but it just it's different than a lot of the sort of nostalgic bullshit boomer pieces. And something that I'm probably I discussed a little bit on the uh, the uh, pod Thomas Anderson episode but I, I definitely want to keep coming back to because I think it ties into the central theme of this movie is like something that I've ran into in the six years I've lived in California and I visited and stayed with my brother a bunch in LA before then and during then is that 
California is constantly in this this cycle of change and this always encroaching sense of gentrification that the state, essentially the culture was built on people who um, was first built on colonizers stealing land and then some new colonizers stole that land. And then uh, there was a gold rush. So it was a whole new set of colonizers stealing the land. And then um, America expanded in such a way that allowed um, a little bit more mobility from people and allowed people yep. to say, Hey, there's a different way to live. Let me, let me try and figure out what I want out of my fucking life. Um, and, uh, those people either got rich and then just became, you know, uh, millionaires with Bur- in Birkenstocks, um, mm-hmm. and started contributing to the gentrification or didn't get rich and then had to constantly move into an ever, ever small, ever shrinking series of apartments or constantly get pushed out, um, of different communities or become homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a big thing they always talk about in California is the homelessness problem because like the, 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 the gentrification machine never stops. The gentrification machine doesn't hit a neighborhood and go, you know, actually, there's a lot of affordable housing here, and that's going to cause a lot of issues. They're like, no. <laughs> Push in, yeah. raise the prices. We got, there's business to be done here. And um, just kind of like put a little bit of a pin in that, and we can come back to it later if we want to. Talking to old timers talking to people that have been here for 10 years, people that have been here for five years, the thing I always hear is like, oh man, the neighborhood's really changed. Man, that's really changed over there. Man, it sucks down there. Um, it's so different there. Now that neighborhood's too fucking fancy. Like you can't even get dinner. You can't even get a beer for less than $9. Like that kind of thing. Um, and you hear it from the, you hear it from everybody, but it's always about a different neighborhood. And it's always either like, Hey, it's awesome that that neighborhood finally got cleaned up. And then the same people, same boomers that live on my street who are very sweet old dudes, but like same people will flip around and be like, but man, it's just too expensive over there. And now I know why they have that homeless problem is because nobody can afford to live over there. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of push pull, no one's figured out a fucking solution for is going to constantly create this weird nostalgia for a California of the past. And I know people that talk this way about my neighborhood in 2004. And I'm like, that was their, that was their summer of love was like, oh man. You should we have thought been John an- Kerry was going to get elected. <laughs> you should have been an OB in 2004, man. Like we had these beach parties every night and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, John Kerry was on the ticket. And I, I think that it's important to kind of like note that this movie is about a time and place, but it's also a thing that Californians can never stop talking about as long as the economy keeps growing and growing. As long as gentrification is a thing here, it's always going to be a thing. This ever-changing neighborhoods, history getting wiped out, history being created, history getting wiped out. There's a lot of that in Minneapolis-St. Paul. I think any metro area, especially where you, you know, people have lived here on their life. Like, we used to go to this mall and now that, you know, it's like you're remembering the mall. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's 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 a natural inclination and, and it's like, it's, it's hazy nostalgia, which I actually think is a good, like, this movie is even filmed in a way where the frames uh, and the film stock looks faded like it's you know it's shot in this beautiful like it was i think it was 70 millimeter um or because it kind of look it looks like that from the from the um even the the streaming version that i end up mm-hmm. watching but like it's really faded and it's like it some of that is just like stylistically trying to harken back to like you know 70s era 
uh, you know, one of the, the, the things that like the nice guys, which we're going to talk about a lot next week, some of the detractors of that movie, which was overall more positively received, but they were kind of harkening back to this movie. They're like, you set a movie in the seventies and you didn't make it look like it was set in the seventies besides like a car and a style. It's all aesthetic. It's not, um, it's not vibes. Right. Mm -hmm. And this movie is like all that, but also, yeah, the hazy memory of like past nostalgia. And so you, you don't have people directly addressing what you're talking about, Peter. You have people that say it in, in like, in like the war's over. Like they have that kind of like Bigfoot constantly is, is referencing like, what are you even still doing? The, you know, the world's moved on. California's moved on. Our city, you know, LA has, has moved on. And there's a bunch of people that, yeah, are, are nostalgia for something for, for like, I mean, there's nostalgia for the summer where they couldn't get pot and like how that made them try other things like the Ouija board. And they had a magical moment and stuff like that, you know, which is a, which is a, a very funny scene, but yeah, it's, it's, and then on top of that, like what these, what the hippies in this movie are fighting for is just, you know, they've moved on for the most part from like political activism and have moved into like, hey, if the world's going to, you know, become straight laced and move on from the idea and the concept of summer of love, like let's take drugs and, get massage quote unquote massages and you know try to stick it to the man where we where we can without any sort of like overall like political ethos that they're ascribing yeah. towards so i yeah i think part of I the think, fun of the movie is that like or part well of the that's fun what i mean it like just comes this. out of the seams but it's yeah. not it's not telling you that like it is all in the periphery and the vibes and the little moments and the dialogue and the, you know, the way the film looks and everything else that is really giving you this sense is like this uh, hazy memory on top of a hazy memory of nostalgia on top of like characters who are literally hazy about what's going on at any given moment. Yeah. And there's like stuff in this movie that seems ridiculous, but I think you, it sort of helps explain what happened to a lot of the hippie movement, which is like, but not in a literal way, like in an uh, emotional or political way. It's kind of explaining like, well, why are these hippies hanging out with motorcycle Nazis? And yeah. like the movie kind of explain, like, like visually and, and sort of um, through Koi's story kind of explain how like you can be a revolutionary and then become a counter revolutionary that works with a motorcycle Nazi gang. And like, this is not, this is while this is a, a, a essentially like a very dark comedy, um, yeah. comedy noir. This is not like the movie being like, wouldn't it be crazy if like, this is actually COINTELPRO Pro was actually something that <laughs> like the United States government did uh, to its citizens. Um, well, this is this is a particularly crazy era where like the uh, the count the um, countercultural movements um, were faced with like great challenges, and when you have no direction to point your your movement, um, and you're mostly directed and you're mostly gathered up by uh, fuck this, the sucks. <laughs> um, yeah. Eventually, a lot of you are going to get siphoned into you know right wing movements. You're going to yeah. get siphoned into, into into Reaganism when he was the governor. Um, and then eventually the president, you're just going to get siphoned into this, this darkness because like it's comforting darkness. Well, yeah. I mean that we talk about that and have talked about in this show many times. It's like the, the hippie generation, the Vietnam generation, the boomer generation 
is like has has circled all the way back around to like be you know that Reagan kind of started it and it kept going and the idea of like you know the hippies were saying fuck the system and then at some point fuck the system became like you know they they were saying fuck the government which made sense but now like they're they're siding with people who are the government who just also know how to say fuck the government because that was their that was the mindset of their generation in general. So they have like, you know, you have all these like hippie, hip, uh, hippie liberals who have come around to be fascists and they don't even really realize it. Like they still yeah. think they're fighting a system as they are the main people in charge of that system. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely true. And the movie is not like spending a lot of time on these themes but it's a movie that like i think emotionally helps explain a particularly weird era for people and a weird era that they're being told on fox news they're being told by their grandparents they're being told by their parents even like was this golden beautiful like oh man we had this wonderful moment uh man the you know the country was really changing anyway so after that i became a fascist like (laughs) there's a there's a there's a, a term that happens very now. Quickly. I serve corporate interests because fuck the government, man. Yes. <laughs> like, wait, what? And there's a, there's uh, a term that happens really quickly, and I think it's kind of hard to explain emotionally to younger people that weren't there. And I feel like this movie like emotionally explains it in a way that like I particularly like. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's a movie Let's about a time and a place. Let's talk about it. That time, 1973. <laughs> sure. Early seventies. <laughs> I think they're. I think they're like a little hazy on what it's supposed to be. I'm gonna say seventy two. It's definitely. It's definitely early seventies. It's not pushing into the eighties, and it's also relevant enough that like, is it like seventy or seventy one? Because they mentioned like the Manson family as like uh, like when that cop pulls him over, he's like, "Hey, after that whole Manson family thing, we have new guidelines for how to treat." try to be hippie so it has to be somewhat close to that yeah 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 but anyways yeah let's head to there let's vibe man will somebody wear me to the face will a lady pin me in her hair will a child find me by a string I think you are best positioned here to walk us through inherent vice, which we all know is a vice that you've gotten from one of your parents. Mm-hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, you inherit your vice. Um, yeah. Like for me, um, I inherit um, guilt for no reason. Is that from your parents or from Catholicism? Mm, you're right. It might be more of a nurture thing. I just assume yeah. that... Um, Growing up Irish, you're just guilty for no reason. You're so you think it's baked bad. into your genetics to feel sad about jacking off. <laughs> <laughs> I, all right, you're right. Well, I hope I don't get uh, hit by a car as I bite to confession and spend all <laughs> eternity in hell. You're right. I really hope that uh, my, my ancestors at least had a beautiful, wonderful moment one day. Um, where they were just jacking off and just smiling, feeling great about. Oh, the I'm sure you go back far enough on that timeline. They probably like just like you ever like it's like your dog or something, you know. I mean, you have to go back a little bit, but it's still a genetic line. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think 
I like to think that some of this is That's not how religion mine. started. Someone's just going, no! <laughs> it's easier for me to be like, um, oh, actually, um, I can't do anything about this. <laughs> this no. is just the way I am. Jesus, take the wheel, as you yeah. like to say. Because uh, you've taken everything else from me. Might as well yeah. take the wheel. <laughs> yeah. It's gone out of my car. <laughs> all uh, right all right peter what happens in this this movie how do you uh, how do you want to go through this movie um i think I'm, I'm, probably I'm your lead. chronologically with every single plot beat explained okay um, let's do it no i think i think what's probably best for this type of movie just like we did with big lebowski and, and just like we'll do next week it's kind of chase themes a little bit yep um not go through every single plot beat, but to chase themes a little bit, chase characters, and I think that for a while we're actually going to be doing just fine. So, yeah. Um, we're introduced to Doc Sportello. He's a PI working in Gordita Beach, California in the early 70s. He uh, sort of with his friends contending, like we were talking about, with sort of the death of the hippie era, but in, in this place at the beach, um, things seem a little frozen in time. Um he, uh, you know, he can still afford his, his rad pad. He's got, you know, his office. He's still got friends that live nearby. Not everyone's been pushed out. Um, and he can pretty much smoke pot most days until a client shows up in his office, right? He doesn't have a day job. Yeah. I do think you could do a fan edit and take Sam Elliott's narration from The Big Lebowski and put it into this movie. I think it'd fit just fine. I think it'd be fine. Like, if, like there's, there's like eight scenes where you could be like darkness washed over the, washed <laughs> over the dude. That's the thing is like Joanna Newsom's like, um, like a uh, sort of, um, I don't know, sprightly, ethereal, sprightly? beautiful narrating yeah. is is very different than Sam Elliott's. I, you know, maybe this movie could use a. <laughs> Cowboy just talking nonsense <laughs> at three different points in the middle. It's the same sort of vibe. Like, she, I mean, she sometimes is more specific commenting on the plot. Like, oh, no, oh, no, Doc, like, please use your drug sense. Like, she's almost watching through a crystal ball and commenting on what you're yeah. seeing. Um, but sometimes it is just kind of that same sort of, like given thoughts but it's not coming from doc it's coming from like in a lot of these uh pi shaggy uh, shaggy dog mystery movies it's coming from like an unconnected character who's just kind of commenting on not just the plot but life itself yeah and she but she's not omnipotent right like there's a po point when she says like she's a character there's, yeah there's points when she says like um you know that's obviously a trap it's obviously yeah. like an FBI trap, and then um, it's not right. It's yeah. A, it's yeah. A, um, but let's let's get into that a little bit. Um, those characters in in Gordita Beach don't really matter much, so we're gonna we're gonna probably skip over them. Um, his uh, old girlfriend Shasta comes back in his office, and Shasta is dressed not like a hippie, but like a straight ahead, you know, domesticated woman, a modern woman. Um. A flatlander, I think, is what they call it. Um, there's a lot of really awesome turns of phrase in this movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, Shasta is um, basically says that she's after she left him, she hooked up with and is in love with this guy, Mickey Wolfman. 
who's this massive real estate developer and gentrifier um, who's uh, involved in all sorts of shady uh, shady things. He's involved with neo-Nazis, this international drug ring, dash dentist order. Um, he's involved in, uh, with the police and the sort of like, uh, you know, uh, push to kick out another set, yet another set of minorities and out of various areas, sort of, um, he's, he's very highly connected, very rich. And she says that I'm worried, um, my boyfriend, he's disappeared and his, I think his wife is, is, uh, is the one that did it. Um, basically there was a plot to have him committed. Yep. Um, and, uh, have him committed. You don't know why at this point, but later you're going to find out because, um, Mickey Wolfman, um, was having sort of a, uh, a hippie come to Jesus moment where he realized that with all this wealth, it, it made him no happier. And uh, through the help of drugs and, and talking to various people, he had come to the conclusion that he was supposed to give all of his wealth away. So he was going to build like a commune out in the desert um, yep. and uh, give all the rest of the money left over a- after that. Um, his uh, wife and her boyfriend and some other folks involved uh, who were kind of on the dole and like Mickey Wolfman as this sort of real estate developer tycoon – they didn't care much for this, so they have him committed to a place called the Chris Caledon Institute in Ojai, cool. north of L.A. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's how our story sets off. Shasta says, I want you to figure out what's happening to my uh, my boyfriend. Um, and, uh, yeah, Doc takes the case. Yeah. So that's the, that's the, that's the first part. Yeah. Um, so Doc begins chasing kind of leads, right? Yeah. And he's going down the he's going down the list. Uh he first he's um trying to figure out chase down these neo this neo-Nazi group, which leads us to our first plot big plot um thread. Excuse yeah. me, our second big plot thread, which is gonna be about um Koi. Yep. Um, who, uh, former... Played by Owen, Owen Wilson. Played by Owen Wilson. He's great very, in this movie. So funny in this movie. movie. So funny in this movie. So charming. He's barely in the movie, but, like, you really care when things go his way. I do think that Owen Wilson has had this wonderful critical re- reevaluation, And I think Owen Wilson always had a lot of, like, indie cred and stuff like that, obviously, with the Wes Anderson connection and him co-writing. Um, a few of those move, a, f- a few of his early movies, uh, like Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums. But I feel like everyone got really sick of Owen Wilson somewhere around uh, Wedding Crashers and like You, Me, and Dupree uh, era. And I like, definitely I, after Wedding Crashers, but like more. Yeah, you're right. More in the You, Me, and Dupree, uh, Drillbit Taylor kind of era. Yeah, where it's just like, oh, this guy sucks. And it's easy. So, once someone with a very specific shtick, which Owen Wilson plays Owen Wilson type in every movie. He has a specific... He's such a, like, has a specific cadence and doesn't mean he's a bad actor. He just, he he can play different characters, but he just is so specifically Owen Wilson in all of his movies. Kind of like a Seth Rogen or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he... Uh, 
it, it felt like, oh, his stick is worn and tired. And, like, as he's starting to be, uh, even the stuff I know you don't like all that much, Peter, like uh, the Loki TV show, um, he's just, like, he's so good at stepping back from I'm going to be in shitty PG or R-rated, like, broad comedies and get back into, like, just really wrapping myself around this uh, character. It's so fun to see. Um and and he's I, I kind of forgot he was in this movie honestly. Um, what happened to comedies in like the late two thousands, where early early twenty tens too, where it was like the death cry of the studio comedy, where we got the absolute worst out of an entire generation of comedic actors. We got <laughs> we got the Paul Blarts, we got the grown ups from Adam Sandler yeah. and like the ridiculous six stuff, like uh, like we. We got an, a truly a culture obliterating series of um, bad comedies, which in full pension mode, I think, was a combined effort, a conspiracy by the major studios to end comedy as a um, enterprise um, and shift us fully towards superhero movies. Um, because comedies were a cheap way to make money stateside and they didn't want those to, to take up precious, precious space. We want international hits. So let's make some of the worst scripts you've ever seen on the fucking planet into the worst movies. You've I mean, ever there's seen so the many, planet. there's so many bad ones where there's like a 10 year period that if it was a studio comedy, even as someone who was alive and watching was like, oh, that's going to be bad. Like, it didn't matter if there was funny people in it and like. Yeah, there there was definitely a a dearth of like good good comedies, but I also think like and I'm so sad to say this Peter, I think all of those movies have a bunch of 12-year-olds that watch them and love them and in the same way like all of us go around saying and I do believe this. I'm not like saying and I Maybe not all of us, but I'm like, you know, yeah, Adam Sandler's got some stinkers, but like Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore are really good movies in the way like our parents were like, these are, and all the critics were like, these are fucking terrible movies. I was watching some TikTok around like this person's like 20 funniest movies of all times. And the the first couple were interesting enough that I'm like, all right, I'm going to see. And he was, he was clearly like 15 years younger than me, but I was curious. His like number six was grown ups. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like the, someone watched this when they were 10 in the same way that like all those movies that I watched when I was 10 that are comedies that like, no, the critics hated at the time. And my parents and like that generation hated like, Grown Ups and Drillbit Taylor and fucking You Mean Dupree and fucking horrible the 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 Hangover trilogy is like there's a whole generation that like those are their ten year old comedy movies and they're gonna they're gonna love them I don't know what to tell you Peter like I I'm it's, glad it's that gonna Lord get all and it's getting residuals that's all you know I'm just fine. saying like we're we're fucked there's gonna be a we're gonna be fifty or sixty and there's gonna be a thirty year old movie critic and that's Grown Ups two is his favorite movie it's <laughs> <laughs> just how it's gonna go. Christ. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely correct. Um, but yeah, the the Owen Wilson got shit on um, in that in that context. But yeah, so. it's just great, great. I do think this is when he was trying to figure out how to come out of like some of that stink, and he started appearing in more odd movies or more bit parts. And this is such a perfect one for him to do that. It's it's absolutely perfect. So let's yeah. run through the story of Hope, Koi, and Amethyst because that's the yep. second main plot thread. Um. Hope, uh, Hope and Koi were junkies. Um, 
they had a child named Amethyst. Um, uh, Doc eventually ends up at uh, Hope at uh, Hope's house, um, just kind of, and she's like, basically, uh, the county told me that my husband is dead, and he was declared dead uh, as an overdose. Um, but I never got to identify the body. I've never seen the body. Like, I have my doubts. So, Doc, can you look into this? Well, she's played by Jenna Malone. Jenna Malone. I will say she starts a runner that I think is very Do you like her chompers? Yeah. Well, she talks about her chompers a lot because she had, she did meth and she lost her teeth, right? Or heroin. She did heroin. heroin. Sorry, heroin. Sorry. Uh, There's a later scene where they do amphetamines. I was getting, what was the drug that does it? Um... I uh, I think this also starts a very funny runner in the movie where almost everyone who's like, yep, they're dead, <laughs> shows up later. Um, yes. Everyone – like some of it is I think a little bit of a wink and a, uh, a nod to like the 1970s ability to like identify a dead body was like – I don't know. Is this – do you know this person? <laughs> Maybe some fingerprints and the like – that's it, but there's so many people. There's like three or four characters in this movie who are like, yep, they're dead. And then they find them later on, <laughs> or they show up later. They it's 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 a great little joke. Yeah, there's a lot of really great jokes. I think this yeah. movie doesn't get enough credit for being as funny as it is. There's a great joke nestled into this moment where um Hope is sharing this heartbreaking story about having a, a kid um yeah. that she was passing the heroin through her breast milk to the kid. And they don't show this picture, which I think is good in many ways, but um, the joke wouldn't work this way also. Um, the, she shows a picture of what the baby looked like um, after uh, using heroin for a while and or, you know, receiving heroin for a while. I don't want to say using. Um, it's a baby. Um, Normal. And uh, and uh, Joaquin Phoenix as Doc goes, just screams like a cartoon character <laughs> and then straightens his face to like go back to being professional. And it's yeah. one of the hardest times I've ever laughed at a movie. He has so yeah. many great little like broad comedy, like Looney Tunes reactions to things. Yeah. And then he's like, uh, yeah, actually, sorry, I'm a professional. <laughs> yeah. And Joaquin so Phoenix, Walking Phoenix by far has one of the best like I'm figuring it out or solving it in my head faces of all time. Like, he's so good at kind of, like, putting his hand under his chin, like, as a fist and, like, contorting his face. Like, he does not a lot of movies where someone is told He's an active something. listener. Yeah, but he is he's – he's so specifically good at that that it works – there's so many times I laugh at him like, okay, like, the over way that he's showing – that he's thinking, let's talk about the comedy for a second, though. Let's use that as a jumping off point because I agree there are vi- there are so many funny moments in this movie. I do think that a lot of people expected this to be his broadest, most accessible comedic movie based on all of the pre-release interviews and press. So, Paul Thomas Anderson, when he was getting interviewed for this movie, said that he was inspired, obviously, by the book. But his other main source of inspiration was Airplane and Top Secret and the films of, like, David Zucker and Jim Abrams and those types of movies. And I remember seeing that right up even in The Dissolve and being like, oh, my God, what is this movie going to be? He's doing, like slapstick parody and all this other stuff. Like when you think of airplane or naked gun, you just 
you think of a specific style of a joke a minute type movie. And even though it's unfair to put those like, I mean, it's just an interview where he says he was influenced by it. But I think there was a lot of talk about this is going to be Paul Thomas Anderson movies are always most of his movies are always very, very funny. I've, I talked on the that episode of Pod Thomas Anderson about how Punch Drunk Love doesn't get enough credit for being like one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And there's all these little moments and there's all these great lines. And there's all these quotable things. And I think even like um, Boogie Nights like has a lot of very funny moments and a lot of subtle funny moments that one of my favorite lines in that movie that no one ever remembers is the when he meets John C. Riley and or when Mark Wahlberg meets John C. Riley and John C. Riley goes, Hey, you seen that movie Star Wars? And, and Mark Wahlberg's like, Yeah, yeah. People tell me I look like Han Solo. <laughs> like, I can't think of a person who looks less like Harrison Ford than John C. Riley, but there's all those little like character moments and funny lines and stuff like that. And I think knowing how funny Paul Thomas Anderson can be, and then saying he's inspired by the fucking airplane naked gun top secret movies, people went in with a very specific idea of what this what this was gonna be as a comedy, and it didn't meet those expectations. And so people didn't find it as funny as it is because you're right, Peter, you can see where he's inspired by that, by, by those movies. That part is a great example. Him looking at the, the picture screaming and going back to a normal face is like something right out of fucking Frank Drebin and police squad. When someone hands him a picture of like, you know, this is my husband and he screams and gives it back, goes, Oh, he's a, he's a very handsome man or something like that. Like that is the cadence of those movies, but it, in those movies, it's overplayed, and so, like, it has a different, like, rhythmic, comedic sense than this. So, even though I can see it, and I think it is a very funny movie, and I think moments like that that you're calling out, that's exactly what it is. It, when you go in expecting Airplane and you get Inherent Vice, I think people missed a lot of it or were yeah. underwhelmed by it. And there are a lot of jokes that are underplayed because Joaquin Phoenix's performance, like he has really yeah. broad moments, but like here's a moment that's really quiet and then really broad. So uh, he's investigating. There's this there's a scene that doesn't particularly matter, but he goes to a massage parlor that is uh, front for uh, sex work. I mean, and, I don't know if it's a front. Yeah. they. I mean, they literally put the, the names of all the different sex acts you can get on a giant. That's going to be hard but to But the board explain. is on the inside, at least. On the front. I mean, I guess you can put it parlor. down. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's a front, but like. Not so. You can see the, you can see the illegal activity through the yeah. window. Yeah. Um, so the point is that there's this joke that's like played very quietly for something that's like so ridiculous. There's, um, there, he's looking at the menu items for all these things, and there's like yeah. pussy eater special or whatever. Yeah. And then there's some confusion about what a pre preview is of a pussy eater special, and there's some yeah. sort of back and forth with him. And yeah. you get distracted by the joke because a woman is eating out another woman on frame. Yeah. And it's sort of like a little moment where he's just like, I thought I was gonna. What, whatever. He, like, I was going to be a part of the pussy. He thought he was going to be involved in some way. Yeah. And then he's like, okay, anyways. You, and they're very distracted, yeah. uh, obviously. Yeah. Um, and as you should be when you're eating pussy. Yeah, focus when you're eating that pussy. <laughs> there should, you should have a, a freight train should be able to drive yeah. through that room and you won't hear it, okay? Yeah. I want dedication in that space. Yeah. Um, but 
he starts he walking fun. to the back office to poke around a little bit. And then he and, and they have this great comment, big broad comedy moment where he gets hit on the head with the back of a bat yeah. from someone around a corner. And then he does two little weak like oh, wild yeah. swings and then passes out um, yeah. completely. So it's like this joke that's like broad, and then the actual joke is kind of like tucked between all the ridiculousness, and then there's another big broad joke. And so you missed what is a pretty funny exchange where he thought he was going to be involved in a sex act, but instead, like, the free preview is just watching two women go down at each other. He's like, yeah, I, okay, okay, I get this, I get this. Yeah, that you're 100% right. Like, all those moments are, you can see it. You can see why Paul Thomas Anderson would say that and i think it's it's the influence is actually very clear i just think that people expected expected it to be a um a direct line of the way they they approach comedy as opposed to a philo- philosophy of how uh the comedy yes. is approached yeah yeah and i i've seen people refer to this movie as like not funny or like you know whatever um it's just that it doesn't have a lot of huge broad comedy moments it, on average per minute over the course of a two and a half hour movie. And yeah. then there's essentially there's like one joke in the last half hour. It's a very grim, serious yeah. finale for most of the characters um, and, and a happy ending. Um, but like um, the like. Bigfoot eating the phallic stuff has become like a meme, I think, online. Yeah. Him just watching Bigfoot eating the uh, chocolate, um, chocolate banana. Yeah. Just, just like slurping it down in a very phallic way has like kind of become like an yeah. online joke. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many funny things that we talked about, like the what do you hear about? Uh, good question and like while he's thinking about his reason that he told him for being there the guy figures out who he actually is and then goes yeah. to be like that's just funny. care um obviously <laughs> the like whole it's just Mar- a question you ask <laughs> yeah also the whole like uh the whole martin short um scene is so hilariously funny which i'm sure we'll get to um my favorite line in the movie is um a very underplayed moment that again you can see this exact joke replicated in a Zucker Brothers movie. It's just it, the cadence is different. And so mm-hmm. it feels unrecognizable. But there's a point where Bigfoot calls him, uh, calls Doc. And in the background, um, his wife is slamming dinner down, slamming cupboards. Very, at first, you're almost like – Again, the kind of like wife in the background, you know, being furious while it's not affecting, that's a Zucker Brothers joke. Mm -hmm. You realizing that she's doing all these things as a like passive aggressive anger to what's going on in the foreground is a Zucker Brothers joke. Then her picking up the phone and yelling at, uh, at Doc for like, oh, cause, cause, um, cause Bigfoot's like, well, explains who it is. And he's like, oh, you. And she says, do you have any idea at the therapist bills you are responsible for? And he has just one – my favorite joke in the whole movie is – and it's so perfectly underplayed and delivered. And Joaquin Phoenix goes, well, he called me. So. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, all of that, like, you could, re- you could do every line, every action, every moment. It's just like – 
The difference in a Zucker Brothers movie is that as she closed the cupboard, the hinges would come off and eventually, like, she'd be throwing the cat and, yeah. like, you know, throwing the children. Like, it would escalate in that way where it's drawing attention to itself more and more and that whole, like – you know, this cop's calling you and the wife is like, you're, you, you know how sad he is inside? You know how much therapy goes in from having to deal with with you and stuff like that? And then being like, well, like, wrong number, which yeah. is essentially like the same joke. It's so – you can see – you can see it's it's all there every single moment. It's just the entire cadence of it is different. And, God, I lo- that whole scene I love so much. But and there's I will, a lot of ne- I will never get over too. the – well, like like Bigfoot uh, being he like called me. So. He, uh, he called me. There's a lot of there's a lot of subtle stuff going on there too. Like yeah. So if you're watching, so the wife's entire face I think is off screen the entire yeah. movie. Um, if you're watching Bigfoot's yeah, face, he wife. gets excited that he he gets excited that she picked up the phone because she's just tearing into <laughs> yeah into Doc. he loves it. And then he starts. She starts to talk about the therapy, and he's like, "Oh, actually, this isn't a side I want him to show." And then he starts to turn into a little kid because, like, yeah. his mom. It, all of a sudden, it's one day. Like, I asked for one day. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I asked for one fucking day of the week. God damn yeah. it, Christian, yeah. get in the fucking kitchen. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's, good. It's so great. And, uh, so I want to talk about Bigfoot a little bit because. Yeah. So Bigfoot, what a weird character. <laughs> Bigfoot is yeah. Well, they're frenemies. They're, yeah, like because like they, used they to love be each other and hate each other. Yeah, and um. So ultimately, let's run through the the third plot really quickly. While, Hold on. Then we'll ju- as long as we're about pig- wait, no, let's talk about Bigfoot because again, on the comedy thing, he has his kid who knows exactly how to fill him up a new whiskey while he's talking on the phone without breaking eye contact with straight ahead. Like, how is that not? A fucking Zucker Brothers joke. It's just again the 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 visual aesthetic is all different and it just throws you yeah, off. But like it, it throws you it's, off. It's the joke. Yeah, and there's I mean, and he's he's also part of a broad comedy thing that I want to point out a contrast to Licorice Pizza yeah. a little bit. But um, okay, so really quickly, Bigfoot plot. Bigfoot used to be from the old neighborhood. He completely sold out and became a, a yeah. cop, and he's like a TV cop who like. He's always getting promotions. He has the big deal. He has the bullhorn. He's like a big, he's like a big shot detective. He's got the square head, whatever. But he has kind of remained friends with, he's remained friends with Doc. And like, they have formed this very complex, weird friendship where also sometimes he kicks his ass. Yeah. And, and. Not uh, a good friend, I would say. And I would say not a good friend. They have an abusive relationship. But ultimately, Bigfoot wants to get revenge because his partner was killed um, by the syndicate in some way. And he thinks kind of he can manipulate Doc into helping find out or helping get enough evidence out there that he can he can get revenge um, on this uh, Adrian Prussia, who is this uh, guy who essentially the police department hires to kill problems, including problem cops. And so Bigfoot is a ridiculous character that keeps coming back in the movie in various roles. Um, and uh, so they have these meetings together and there's all these amazing lines. There's a really great line where I also forget Benicio del Toro is his uh, is, is uh, Doc's lawyer, but he his yeah. specialty is maritime law. <laughs> I know that that's so funny. And Bigfoot at some point goes really, really Bigfoot goes back this is really into like a, a land based thing. I can you know bring in some pirates or something if it make you feel more comfortable. <laughs> um, 
It also, uh, it also is really, uh, he's slipping back into his fear and loathing in Las Vegas character oh, yeah. a little bit too, which is great. I love the line. He says, like, at the end of this conversation, he's like, I'm going to, you know, he says, I'm going to release, um, I'm going to release uh, Doc. But what he says is, uh, I'm going to kick Mr. Sportello. And then his lawyer, Benicio Del Toro, gets him really close. You're going to kick him? That's assault. <laughs> So, and then Doc has to Doc has to correct him, and, and then uh, at some point Doc is like basically he's like oh if you try Doc in this county in Orange County you'd, you'd absolutely get a conviction, and, uh, and Doc goes uh, I thought you were my lawyer, and then Benicio del Toro, del Toro goes clients pay me Doc clients pay me <laughs> he's. Yeah. It's so it's he's in the movie barely any. Well, like, yeah, the whole the, the fact so that he's good. obsessed with the ship too is so funny. Like when he's like asking about solving the mystery, it's like it's just out there in the sea. <laughs> he just <laughs> he just kind of likes the ship. He's less worried about solving the mystery here. Yeah, he's he's yeah. he's in it. There's also like there's some really great Bigfoot moments. Um, another one that I remember, and I want to compare this to Licorice Pizza a little bit because Licorice Pizza had this very. Um, this very discourse-filled uh, moment where um, a the, the the local businessman um, is pretending to speak Japanese, but he's really just doing uh, English with a a horrendous uh, Japanese accent. It was very no. controversial. Are is PTA allowed to do this kind of joke anymore? This joke's not particularly funny either. Like, what is he doing here? Yada yada. That's a, that's a whole thing. He has a similar scene in this, but I think the scene works way better where um, Bigfoot is insists on going to eat pancakes at a oh. Japanese restaurant. Yeah. And he and he's like, you know, I come here for the respect. Like he likes like he likes that, like the they're respectful and nice to him. Yeah. And so he goes to a Japanese restaurant and just orders pancakes over yeah. and over and over again. <laughs> It's a very funny, like, square job cop yeah. thing to do. And he's just going, Moto Panakeko! Moto Panakeko! He's not doing an accent, but he learned just enough Japanese yeah. to, to get to get through this interaction. Yeah. Uh, and he's not, yeah, he's not doing an offensive accent. It's just very funny to see someone that has learned just enough Japanese to order pancakes order at a Japanese pancakes. restaurant, which yeah. I, I presume, I'm not sure, I presume it's not a diner. <laughs> No. No, it looks like a sushi restaurant. I think the I mean, joke is that he went in there one day and he was like, I want pancakes. And they, and they respected him enough and it was cop badge to be like, I guess we'll get him pancakes. And now he just goes in there and demands uh, never ending. He, he invented IHOP's endless pancakes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And he's he's not like. He's not doing the accent. He's not doing anything. He's just barking as a cop to yeah. get him more pancakes. Yeah. It, that's a very funny scene. The rhythm of the scene is is just incredibly yeah. funny. Yeah. Because it, it exists also while he's questioning Doc and then as an aside yelling to for more pancakes in Japanese. Like Yes. Uh yeah. Um, some other funny stuff that happens. So Doc eventually goes down this rabbit hole and he finds a literal building shaped like a golden fang. Um to con to come back to our theme earlier, changing neighborhoods, changing places. He had this beautiful memory of this day with Shasta we talked about, where a Ouija board gave them a phone number, and the phone number gave them an address, and, like, and Let's a go drug get drug drought. Yes, and they go there, 
and there's no weed and there's this beautiful sequence with Neil Young playing. The soundtrack of this movie is amazing. Yeah, um, that's cool. It, the... Um, and there's this beautiful moment of them just like sitting, taking cover from the rain, just laughing and enjoying. And they like, we forgot that we went out there for weed. Anyways, there's this empty lot right next to that building. Um, and there's a giant golden fang. <laughs> so like this, this massive criminal enterprise has not just invaded the, you know, their, the, the literally the space, but like it's invaded their lives. Like their lives yeah. have changed. Like this isn't just now like an empty lot. This is like, their life is occupied by the presence of massive evil forces. It's it's not simple anymore. Um, and so yeah, go, well, and that's the thing is that this building where Doctor Blatnoid is. Yeah, um, which is one of the funniest scenes in the movie. Um, Martin Short, who I sometimes find very much not funny, I think is fantastic in this scene in the movie where he plays a a uh, basically a meth head, a speed freak, dentist who is dating his receptionist. Um, and you find his receptionist is the daughter of the head of the Golden Fang? Like, I'm, no, okay. I wasn't quite so, sure. so, the receptionist is just a receptionist, and they make a lot of jokes about how every dentist bangs their receptionist yeah, in yeah. this. <laughs> like, I guess it's a pledge they take in dental school. <laughs> yeah. It's so fucking funny. And, um... They, 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 um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, he has the part of the conspiracy is that they have vertical integration. They get people hooked on heroin. Their teeth fall out. They get them cleaned up. They sell them because of privatization of, of uh, mental health facilities. Yeah. Um, through Reagan. Um, they, as the governor, um, Basically, when Reagan was the governor, his um, greatest accomplishment was uh, creating a perhaps never like a, a, a perhaps unsolvable uh, crisis where yeah. um, people do not have state resources to just check themselves into a mental health facility. They have to have uh, basically take up a medical debt if they want to, say, um, be um hospitalized so they don't kill themselves or, you know, or, or do not um, die by suicide. Yeah. Or their families end up having to take on this massive debt or whatever. So basically this vertical integration thing post Reagan is you get people hooked on drugs and then you have their families or th them pay for medical care. And then when it's done, you have them pay for dental care to get their teeth fixed up and make them, uh, you know, respectable members of society with these clean veneers. Uh, and uh, doc, that's all part of the integration. There's um, a uh, a girl that went through some part of this, um, who Dr. Blatnoid has been sexually taking advantage of, sexually assaulting, sexually abusing, whatever, for mm -hmm. years now. And that's the spacey one that goes in the car with them. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he, that is the daughter of one of the heads of the Golden Fang. <laughs> and yeah. Doc helped that Golden Fang member in the past, and he didn't know anything about the Golden Fang, find her um, because uh, she had, you know, done one of her many, you know, disappearances. Yeah. She'd gone to the city to buy drugs or whatever and had disappeared for a long time and her, her she, you know, he wanted her to find him. Yeah. Um, Dr. Blatinoid 
is just, yes, sexually harassing, sexually uh, assaulting, or just having, I guess, consensual weird sex uh, with whoever he can. Um, yeah. And there's this amazing moment when he comes in the office and he's, and Doc forgets, Doc forgets his, his entire thing. Like, yeah. Doc forgets, well, I'm here... Because it was like, it was some complicated thing. He was going to pick up a package for management yeah. or whatever. Yeah. It didn't make any sense. And he gets in there and then uh, immediately Dr. Blatnoid Martin Short is like, oh, do you want to do drugs with me? Yeah. Do you want to do- Well, just to be sociable. Yeah. And then, yeah, he says, just to be sociable. And then he yeah. dives under the table and they both start snorting speed together. Yeah. Um, and then his receptionist comes in and says, Dr. Blatnoid, I think there's a problem with your couch, the couch in your office, and bring that bottle. <laughs> so then he goes in the other room to have sex yeah. with his receptionist, giving Doc a few minutes to poke around. Um, and then he comes back in. And all the weird little Martin Short-isms here are so yeah. fucking funny. There's a moment when, when, uh, <laughs> when uh, Doc is sitting behind the table just talking to the daughter. Um, and, uh, he's going, <laughs> he goes, oh, look at the greedy little hippie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he eventually does get found dead as we find out at the end, which I love that scene where he confronts one of the bots, at the golden fang. He's like, you think you would think I would do something like that? You think I'm such a jealous fa- father that just because this fucking pervert dentist is <laughs> violating my daughter like, like it's so it's so funny and he's and his complaints are like that the 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 hotel rooms that they're having sex in or whatever have um they have like poor aesthetics or something <laughs> Well, he like he did like three versions of why he d- like you think I would do, or maybe it was and like yeah, one of them is just didn't like the hotels they were going doing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, can we talk about? I know we mentioned Owen Wilson a little bit. Um, one of the funny things that uh, the 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 joke that I love about Owen Wilson. So <laughs> Owen Wilson, he ends up being like the main person that Doc ends up saving, right? So mm-hmm. the whole thing is that he's the one he, unequivocal win in the end. He is, yeah. So, well, and I think you could say in, in some ways getting Shasta back as well, because a lot of the movie he thinks Shasta is dead, and that's why he's personally motivated to kind of continue and not just, you know, uh, just decide fuck it and go off in a haze and stuff like that, because he really wants to find out what happened with Shasta, hoping that the the word on the street that she's dead is wrong. So initially he runs into Owen Wilson, who everyone thinks is dead, because that is the report. And they go, oh, my gosh, you're alive. Then he never stops seeing him. Whether he turns on the TV, there's Owen Wilson as like an anti-peace advocate, you know, working with the government. He goes to that, uh, the the place, the, the hippie commune. Uh, where they find uh, Eric Roberts' character. He, and I love that scene where he sees him for like the fourth time and he's like, what are you doing? Like, Mouse, like, what are you doing here to each other? Because they can't reveal they know each other. But it's almost like he he was initially, you know, hired kind of to find him too. And now he can't stop finding this person that theoretically is still supposed to be dead. But eventually... He essentially buy. I mean, the way that his agreement at the end of the movie is uh, when he gives the heroin back, which we can talk about here in a second, is to buy back Owen Wilson's freedom, essentially. 
Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And um, I didn't realize when I watched this movie, like, the third time, I'd start crying at the end. There's this, like, really nice sense after all the fucked up shit that's going on that, like, Owen Wilson and basically Coy and Hope, they, they have... They've gotten their life back together and that they've kicked heroin and they are ready to raise this kid and they've, you know, they've got this sweet little house and just like this, this idea that like you can come back, you, you can come back, um, home again. Like you're not too fucked up to give this a try. You should be there for your kids. You should be there for the ones that you love. Like, um, cause there's a moment, there's moments where Koi is like, I'm just, I fucked up this kid already so much. Like, can't, like, should I just stay away? Like, is this, you know, is, is there, am I just going to cause more damage by going home? And that's like, that's like the most hopeful moment in the movie. It's yeah. just like, a lot of the movie is like, you can't go home again, right? Like, yeah. things change, times change. And this is like, the end of the movie kind of has this weird thing where they're like, no, you can't go back to the way you were before, but yeah. you can make things right from the past. And yeah, um, beautiful moment with this beautiful Johnny Greenwood piece called Amethyst that I yeah. I now listen to regularly. The whole score is really great. There's beautiful kind of more modernist com- compositions uh, by Johnny Greenwood. Um, there's also a bunch of stuff that's mimicking like fifties noir scores, which absolutely yeah. rules. Like the bump, 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 yeah. like the bumpy bumpy and the and the like sort of sad mourn- mournful strings like great score yeah uh where else do you want to go from the plot character perspective um let's see um yeah there's i mean there's a lot of stuff in here that just like firmly doesn't matter like yeah there's this whole there's this whole which, thing. which is like we're every one of these movies that we're yes. gonna cover that is the thing there is and we talked about why that is these people who are writing like these fucking, you know, novels, it's like, I need to write 300 pages so I get the, you know, the hard-boiled paper back out in time so I can go buy another bottle of whiskey. I need eight things that don't matter. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you got to have red herrings, otherwise people are going to figure out the plot immediately, right? And get a little yeah. bored. Um, but, uh, like, there's this whole thing about a blacklisted actor and you know the boat and all of that doesn't really matter but what that does matter for is that shasta comes home to him after he thinks he's pretty sure she's dead comes home to doc um she's back in hippie garb and then eventually completely naked um and she basically tells him about all the trauma that she's been through and the way she's been mistreated and the way that Basically tells him the ways that, like, she was mistreated, but, like, why she loves or maybe still loves uh, Wolfman. Yeah. And it's this really complex return home because it's – she is different now. She's had a taste of a different life. She's had a life where she's – a lot of wealth is given to her, but she's treated very disrespectfully. And it's not that she's, like – you know what? I'd rather be poor with you than with him. She's like, so I, I kind of liked the way he would let me disappear. Yeah. Like she talks about how like it was comforting at times to just become a, yeah, the beautiful. Cause he had, he had one expectation of her. 
Yeah, she didn't have a complex life and she had a lot of comforts, but like, you know, there was there was stuff in there. And then she talks about kind of as she's the story's escalated, she talks about how like she he would bring her to parties and let other men use her. And yeah. she kind of discusses it both as like a point of trauma, but also like not she's not asking for Doc's sympathy or for Doc to help her heal or whatever. She's like, I've discovered new parts of myself I didn't know I had. Yeah. Um, and it's just a very complex come home. And it's really nice to just not have Shasta be this like fridged woman. She comes home and has like a lot to give Doc, like a lot of yeah of information. And she wants him to know the new her and maybe only for a little bit, maybe for a long time. But, yeah. Like, well, it, that's it really the thing. Matters they did, to they him did. that she understood really matters to her that he understands. Yeah, I mean that's kind of their running gag, right? Like the you know d- you know don't expect me to stay, right? That's the line that he says at the end of the movie too. Is it don't expect me to stay? Do I have it slightly? She off? says this doesn't mean we're we're together. We're back oh, that's together, right. yeah, which is yeah. sort of a cutesy line at the end. Yeah. But um, well, but she have- says it. She says it here though. Like it's a callback to this moment when yes, exactly. He, she, he's like because that's the thing. He's been looking for her, and now she's back. But she she wasn't a damsel in distress. Like she left, she you know, just like anything. Like there was, she's saying there was good and bad with you, Doc, and there was good and bad in my new life, and it, it looked completely different. I'm going to share that with you. But like, don't think this means that I'm running running back and going. You know, I made a huge mistake. Like, don't expect me or don't ask me to stay. Don't you know? And that's that's the callback at the end when they're driving together. He says the same thing back to her. Like, yeah. I don't know how permanent anything is. So, don't. Exactly. Yeah. His life is chaotic stasis. Like, things yeah. are the way they are right now. But the things, the way that they are right now is is, is an affordable space for chaos. Like, yeah. it has comfortable realms, uh, a comfortable space for chaos. I don't know. I just really like that in these movies, they always have the, the, the um, kidnapped woman. She's like, damsel in distress or... She comes home. Yeah, she comes and, running and, back, and then she gets killed at the end. Yeah, but, or, or at, at, and then they they got more clever with it later to be like she's a complex victim. Yeah. She she went through a lot of trauma, and instead they're like, yeah, she went through like a lot of stuff, but she also went through a lot of stuff before she even talked to Doc the first time, and she's basically like asking him, she's like, I want to have like rough sex with you. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. that would that would be something that would make yeah. me feel complete at present. They have a new yeah. status quo. In a weird way, this kind of echoes the ending of um, Phantom, not Phantom Pain. Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace. Did I just call the movie Phantom Pain? What is that? I mean, fucking... that, that's, that's a good description. Yeah. Um, I think the Phantom Pain is a movie covered by Mystery Science Theater 3000. So I do think it's a real movie. It's a Metal Gear Solid game is what I'm thinking Oh, that's of. what it is. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm thinking of. Is that the ending? I've never played any of those games. Is this the ending? Uh, yes. yes. Does does Snake... I don't even know if Snake's still the... Snake's like, don't think this means I'm not going to nuke you. <laughs> and then Otacon's like, I know, Snake. And yeah, the joke wasn't for me, but I hope someone got something out of it. This is just kind of a complex moment. I really want to spend a moment there because we don't get a lot of Shasta time. We don't get a lot of Koi time, frankly. Yeah. But, like, we... um, This is a complex moment I really want to spend Both Koi and Shasta have, like, four-minute monologues twice, though. Yeah, yeah. Unbroken good monologues. Yeah. Yes. Um, so as Do you want to talk about 
Reese Witherspoon? She's in this movie. Reese Witherspoon is in this movie. This is kind of right as she's trying to stand up her, like, life as a producer, which has been yeah. fairly successful at this point. Um, a lot of people started pods and production companies, and they, they used to call them pods when I, like, 10 years ago, but... Yeah. Um, she actually had a successful one that I think she's made a good amount of money on. But this is this is an era where she was kind of stepping away from acting. So it was just nice to see her in like a real role again. Yeah. Um, she's, she's really fun. I really she's like good. she has a complex relationship with Doc, too. Right. Yeah. Like, I think they're both kind of cheating on each other, but they're they're kind of they're kind of aware of the fact that like this is just kind of like a. He likes Physical he likes thing, the access yeah. that she gives him, and then she likes being able to come home after a st- stressful day and yeah. like live the hippie lifestyle and get high and eat pizza with him. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, she lives. She's like a paralegal, right? So she's it's very buttoned up and. Yeah, she works for the DA's the district office. attorney. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. So she has yeah. access to like really good info that even yeah. like Bigfoot can't get. Yeah. Which plays into the ending. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm fine going where you want to before we before we wrap up here. I, I feel like we've talked about a lot of it, but yeah, I think that the movie I've talked a lot about how like you know sort of the American dream and and this um this the the thing that Wolfman says, which is um they wanted to make me, wake me up from my bad hippie dream. That there's a line at the um. The Chris Caledon Institute, where uh, it's a, in the narration. As long as American life is something to be escaped from, the cartel could always be assured a bottomless pool of customers. The idea with this vertical integration path is that, like, these, the corporatization of America, they will always find new ways to have new customers, legal and, and illegal. And that's, like, you know, both a literal thing, but also it's a spiritual thing. The idea yeah. that it's never enough, that even the sort of um, internal pain that causes someone to get hooked on hard drugs um, can be mined in, in multiple ways to get uh, get people, get every ounce of money out of people and get them into bad debt. Yeah. The movie very much takes place in the shadow of like the oncoming like Reaganite uh, era. Doc doesn't bring down the Golden Fang. Doc doesn't no. uh, get Reagan yeah, out of Yeah, office. he actually returns their heroin to them. <laughs> yes. The big, Bigfoot plants on him as kind of a, this would be a good way to get this person out of my life that I have a complicated relationship with, who's costing me a lot of therapy bills and everything else. If he gets busted with all this heroin, even the narrator's like, oh, no, Bigfoot, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> you know? then, uh, um, but yeah, he re- dopers ESP. Yeah. That, like yeah. Doc's paranoia actually has like, yeah. it's part of his superpower. But the yeah, but he gives the, the heroin back. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's okay. So that's the thing that I wanted to talk about. Okay. So in some sense, let's talk about the ending really quickly. And I kind of want to tie that in. Doc goes to investigate a lead, Adrian Prussia, a neo-Nazi, ties him up shoves him full of drugs yep. and doc breaks out kills this guy with his own needle and then shoots adrian prussia and it's like yeah. the most competent doc has been all movie and yeah. he is probably tripping balls at this point yeah um and uh doc you know undoes the handcuffs with part of uh, uh what's her name uh shasta's shasta. credit card yeah like there's this 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 really like you know clean brutal action sequence right yep so um 
Bigfoot wants to turn him in. And then Doc's like, wait, I know what I can do. And then he gives the drugs back. And the reason that I find that giving the drugs back thing so interesting and complicated is that the whole point of the counterculture movement was like, fuck the man, fuck the big corporations, fuck these, fuck these, um, you know, uh, slave masters, these people that like are trying to put people into economic slavery or, you know, mm-hmm. put people in literal slavery overseas um, and here as well. Um, but uh, that he ends up in the end, the weird thing is that, you know, for all his counterculture and trying to help people out and all of that, he ends up serving the, the, the needs of the Golden Fang, right? Yeah. They got, they got one of their messy interlopers out of the way. Adrian Prussia was becoming a messy interloper. That, and then he get, gives them their heroin back um, with very little muss in their hair. They were basically done with koi anyways. Yeah. Um, they're a American family, which I think is supposed to be some sort of the future of the country kind of thing. I didn't totally get it, but they're like a Brady Bunch family in a yeah. station wagon that picks up the, the drugs. Um, and they're all hardened criminals. Even the 12, even like the 12 year olds, like, what are you looking at to talk? Yeah. Um, and we get the sense that like, no matter what, he can't win. Um, he can yeah, but, all he can do is help the people that that's around him. He can't beat the system. Well, yeah, that's that's the metaphor, right? Like you can get small victories against the system of oppressions that exists, but you're 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 not, and that's what that's almost what you need to focus on. Like, what good can I do within within a like system that is meant to kind of brutalize people people down? And like, yes, the hippie movement was about overthrowing the system. And there's there's a you know a lot of people as we talked about in in the beginning like abandoned that when they realized that the system was only or the man or whatever else was only getting more powerful and I I think what Doc is finding at the end and I think Doc would have probably always done this because he's a good guy in general but it's that idea of like yep cannot I I'm not going to take down the system by myself and. There's no longer a movement that's like hyper focused on that that I'm a part of. So like, where do I get my inner peace and my victories? Which is, you know, saving one person and and you know that that's that's almost like the what's the, the meme? You know the the like oh you know you participate in society yet uh, want to make it better, interesting. Like you know that that's kind of a, a reality that we all live with. It's like you know I work in a corporate job, like in all the terribleness that can come with that. It's like how do I try to make my little corner of that better for the people that uh, you know that uh, that I that I interact with or stuff like that. And like you can still focus on a bigger bigger mission while also just representing that like giving up completely like a lot of the ex-hippies that we talked about that just kind of went over to fascism and saying or, or or Bigfoot in this movie in a lot of ways is that idea of like well you can't fight the system so you might as well join them and you know there's a difference between joining them from a philosophical perspective and joining them because they own the society that you're a part of and that's kind of the two people in this movie right Bigfoot is the person who is like uh, if you can't if you can't fight him, join them. So I'm going to you know his joke about I you know I had a busy day of taking away people's civil liberty you know violating people's civil liberties and it's like a joke but it's also true because that's what cops do that's what he signed up for he's not making the world a better place he's participating 
in a system. If he quit being a cop, it wouldn't change the system, but he might find little moments like Doc does at the end to do some to make to make the world a little bit of a better place. And it's a totally it's a really good point there. Um, and that's kind of like how Doc sees the world. Even Bigfoot, who would have completely ruined his life and maybe gotten him killed in prison. Um, Bigfoot comes to his house and instead of knocking, just kicks down the door and you're like, are you going to arrest him for whatever? But this is Bigfoot. Bigfoot is now incapable of being chill. He's now, he's, he's, he is the machine. He's the, the muscle of the machine. He's not capable of being the person he was before when they were friends back in, in Gordita beach. And him going back there, kicking down the door, shoveling a pound of wheat into his mouth, consuming yeah. like like it really reminds me. I mean, I'm, there's a literal metaphor, and then there's like just sort of a you know this is just a crazy image. Literal metaphor reminds me of just people who like really want to consume as many substances as possible because yeah. it's like part of the it's part of the consumption habit. Like oh well, you know. I'm a big I'm a big baller, yeah. so I've gotta I've gotta smoke the biggest blunt, and I've gotta pop up the you know like the, I just I've gotta have the most of everything. Um, there's that, yeah. but it's also it's this is how Bigfoot reacts to the world. This is Bigfoot like desperately trying to reconnect with the person he was, but he he does it in the most desperately unchill way to chase the yeah. past. And he comes to him and he wants and he tries to apologize and they kind of mutually apologize to each other. And then Doc's reaction is to be worried about him. And he calls him like, are you, he's like, are you okay, yeah. brother? Yeah. And he goes, I'm not your brother. And he goes, but you could use a keeper. Like after all yeah. they've been through, Doc is still like, man, you are not in a good place right now. What yeah. the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, I, that's a it's a great moment. You know, he is still, you know, he's he's still a humanist looking for for what he saw. He's not he's not turning his back completely on society. He's not fully participating in it. And I, you know, I think that I mean, like from a from a thematic standpoint, that's what a lot of this movie is about. It's like it's why Bigfoot and Doc are like the you know the two sides of the coin, uh, a normal coin with two sides. Yeah, um, they are. They're the. They're. They both theoretically used to be a little more hippie-ish, and you know, what are the two ways that you can go? And I, I, I do think one of the most important parts is that Doc has not. Can you uh, read what's in the circle? Bigfoot bourgeoisie Dispos- uh, in there. They're, they're, I wrote the exact same thing you said that they're the two sides of the same coin. Sorry, oh, yeah. I, inter- I interrupted you. I, I can't read point. your your handwriting, but yeah, it's, does not. Yeah, it does not surprise me. But yeah, it's also the way that the, the, the it's the divergence of people in general, like not just of this era. It's the divergence of people in general because um, the, the third option I mentioned is like exiting society. Well, if you exit society, you're not you're not part of it anymore. So, like, you know, I know a lot of people in my life, not a lot, I know enough people in my life that, like, you know, became expats and moved out of the country and stuff like that. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that you, in some ways, that's a little bit of, like, some of the people that Doc hangs out with have, like, excised themselves from the system as a whole. And that's kind of the a path of people whose revolution failed, right? Yeah. Doc is participating in society. Bigfoot is participating in society. 
what that looks like is completely different. Yeah. And, and the world is making it a lot harder to live um, the dream of a liberated person, right? Yeah. Um, so, I looked up and I sent you a link to it, um, what Pynchon's apartment looked like that he lived in yes. for a few years. I mean, it looked like this. It looks like they built the set, if, it, if this yeah. is a set, or bought the house. It's like, yeah. I, I don't know. It is a three by two, so three bed, two bath. It's 1.1... 1. 1, um, it's a 1.1 thousand um, uh, square feet, um, and it's a 2.3 million dollar three yeah. by two. And it looks like shit. Yeah, it like, looks very rundown. Um, like you got like I'm not to be one of those people, but go move to fucking Columbus, Ohio, and get the biggest mansion in the town <laughs> for two point two million dollars. And I understand beautiful beachfront, whatever yeah. the neighborhood. They got lakes in Ohio. Yeah, <laughs> I understand that, um, you know, all of that. But, like, it's it's become harder and harder to live the dream um, of just somebody who works part-time or, you know, yeah. has become a sort of weekend warrior artist. Odd or jobs, yeah. Weekend warrior demonstrator, someone that has their job and then after work they go over and they, you know, work at a food kitchen or whatever. They make their community a better place. That, that dream has become further in the distance for a lot of people it's become harder to be a a demonstrator or a protester too if you have a full-time gig time time keeps getting consumed uh, money keeps getting consumed you get arrested and you miss a few shifts all of a sudden it's like oh fuck my life is kind of fucked up for a while yeah um your people are living closer to the chest they don't have as much money put aside because rent is so fucking expensive right um and I'm reminded of how artists used to, t- particularly, I'm thinking more in New York, though, but I'm, I'm thinking a lot about artists, particularly, like, people talk about, like, oh, yeah, um, I lived in an apartment with David Byrne, and down the street, Blondie lived, and Iggy Pop lived, and, you know, before they were getting, I mean, even when we were working at CBGBs, we weren't pulling in very much money. Like, you know, they were talking about this yeah. time where they were allowed to just, like, fuck around, talk to each other, meet people, be exposed to new ideas get their and get their their money but like they weren't millionaires at this point they were they were like kids kids making enough to pay for their shitty rent and that vision in major cities at least is kind of disappearing and even in certain rural areas even even a lot of small towns like you know going back to like bismarck north dakota one of the things is like you could move there and the houses would be cheaper you know than they were and and it is true like if you like you know, it, it's true a little bit, but it's not like you're not talking about the difference between a five hundred thousand dollar house and a sixty thousand dollar house. It's like the same house in a different location, like Minneapolis to to Bismarck, North Dakota. You're talking about the difference of like a hundred thousand dollars. So, yeah. like, if you can't afford a four hundred thousand dollar house or a five hundred thousand dollar house, it's low odds you'll be able to afford it. Like, the, you know, there's a there is a cutoff, but it's not. It's not the difference between like the dream of home ownership or like being able to get by on like one income or or um, yeah part time or odd jobs mm-hmm. or being a PI for example. Yeah, and yeah, so. and, it, and 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 I'm not trying to compare the plight of artists to the next group of people that I'm going to talk about, but the movie talks a lot about gentrification, and they talk about how 
Hispanics were pushed out of this particular area and pushed further out through gentrification and, and moving them out of the neighborhood. Native Americans were pushed out of various areas. And then the movie kind of at the beginning of the movie, they're starting to push black people out of working class neighborhoods um, further into ghettos yep. and further into undeveloped parts of the city. Yep. And, and you think a lot about how these forces like the golden fang and you know less less conspiratorially just like the forces of the right wing kind of apparatus want people to be desperate they want people to be more hard up they want people to be more reliant on labor more reliant on their housing yeah they want people to be reliant on them because that creates a a need and this movie is about that need. It's a movie that like exists and people are talking about these issues. And the and now the place that Thomas Pynchon was writing in for a few years, this beachside mm-hmm. bungalow place, is now $2.3 million fucking dollars for an 1,100-square-foot home. Yeah. Like, yeah. That dream of a beatnik author writing novels and becoming famous is, is gone. Like, hopefully you have rich parents. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, on the flip side, I don't want to say this is, you know, equally important, but <clears throat> on the flip side, we've got Doc, who is living sort of in a spiritual arrested development. Um, he sort of thinks if he doesn't change that, I, I you know, if, if I don't change, the world won't change around me. Yeah. Um, and it's it's fake. Right. It's it, yeah. you have you have to change with the times you have to change. But the. The, t- the times shouldn't come with an ever-increasing pressure on you from society and, and from business interests in the area, right? It shouldn't constantly be this um, test to see if the frog jumps out of the fucking water, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, it's, yeah. A, it's, it's an interesting movie. It's a movie that it's weirdly it's comforting for me. It's a movie that makes me feel like a time and place. It's a movie that I like watching. I watched it a bunch now. I watched it twice in two months now. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad, you know, I I not only rewatching it um made, reminded me how much I like this movie and why I gave it such a high rating to begin with, uh, but also, you know, the listening to to the podcast, reading Ethan's book and and talking about it uh with you here tonight as well. Um, you know, just it, it is kind of the the orphan. It's almost the indie forgotten movie within Paul Thomas Anderson's like indie slash block. Like he's an indie blockbuster maker, right? Mm-hmm. Like his movies are like, like a Wes Anderson or someone else's. Yes. They're not making $300 million, but like they make good money because they are like names within that space. And it's, he almost has an indie movie within that where like not many people have seen it. And a lot of people skipped it in theaters and people were turned off for some of the reviews, but yeah, it it's, it's, it's more than just like a seventies aesthetic mystery movie. It's it's a it's it's telling a story about the seventies through an America and everything else through um through uh, a mystery set in the seventies. So yeah, it's great. I'm glad you picked it. Um, I think it was this and Lebowski were the two linchpins for this month. Uh, and now we're going to next week, Peter. We're going to another look at nineteen seventies mm-hmm. uh, mysteries through the lens of a hyper-relevant mystery and less relevant about the 70s besides people get to wear cool costumes and we get to give Ryan Gosling a mustache. Uh, And that is Shane Black's 2016 movie, The Nice Guys, which 
I rewatched already. It's a goddamn delight. I love this mm-hmm. movie so much. Um, I say yes more, Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> yes more, Mr. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and I do think, you know, I think, Peter, you were a little bit skeptical about including this one because it has a little bit of a different tone. I will say that Ryan Gosling is by far the least competent person uh, that, of, of the detectives that we have. He He's helped by Russell Crowe, who is competent. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's extraordinarily funny. It was so fun to revisit. Uh, and I feel like, uh, I, I don't feel like people, it was, it was, it was well reviewed and did really well in, in 2016, but we're seven years later and I feel like almost yeah. no one talks about this movie I saw anymore. it in theaters and I bring it up to people all the time and they're like, I think I saw an ad for that maybe yeah. a long time ago. It, it does not, it's a, it, it is firmly a cult movie at this point, which is a, a shame because it's, it's, a, it's really good. It's funny as fuck and it has two great, like it's, it's just a, a solid cast of awesome dudes cracking amazing jokes and getting into sick action sequences. What more do people yeah. want? Yeah, and we did we did a whole month of Shane Black, and we excluded this one because it was a, one of the few Shane Black movies not set at set at Christmas. But I also think it's the Shane uh, Shane Blackiest Shane Black movie. Um, it just because of how many t- he, there's a specific Shane Black trick that we'll talk about where he like knows so much about Hollywood conventions that he knows how to upend them, and this movie has him like upending them like every two minutes uh, in this like just wonderful. Constant runner. So excited to talk about it. Uh, and we'll see you next week for the nice guys. so much for listening to we love to watch if you made it to the end hopefully you liked what you heard today and if you'd like to hear more please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch and if you can chip in a few bucks that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward uh it wasn't an implicit threat by peter he just didn't know how to say it but either way we'll continue to make more but it would be helpful uh, as we explained to our loved ones where all our money is going which is all on server space uh <laughs> If you can't, (laughs) uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years uh we really do appreciate you uh with kisses and smooches peter and aaron (laughs)